I just want to be sure that your hesitation to choose pursuing private practice is not being done out of fear or out of just this like, oh, I can't do that or I'm not good enough to do that. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Speech Goods, a podcast where we showcase awesome SLPs doing awesome traditional and non-traditional SLP things. Myself and the guests on this show are here to talk about the goods, the bads, and the untamable parts of ourselves and our SLP careers, and how, despite the challenges of everyday life, have just done the dang thing, loving what we do. I'm your host, Danny Augustine. I went from burnt out, dissatisfied with my SLP job, to dusting off my big girl pants, sprinkling some determination in my 20 cent coffee, and starting my own debt-free private practice. Now, I love my working career and wouldn't trade it for anything else. It was support and wisdom from others around me that helped me refine my why. In this show, I hope you find support and wisdom of your own. Hello, 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 friends, and welcome to this second Q&A episode of the Speech Goods podcast. So if you did not already know, within the last month or so, I've started doing these Q&A episodes every once in a while and allowing you as listeners to submit questions so that I can answer them on the podcast. I love it whenever you send me DMs and we kind of get into good conversations on Instagram, but of course, life is just busy and crazy and like I'm a little pregnant and hormonal at the moment. So I'm not always able to get to everything. So submitting these questions to the podcast makes it so much easier for me to give you a really high quality answer that I want to give you. So if you have not ever submitted a question to the podcast, be sure to click the link in the description and it will take you to this quite handy dandy Google form where you can go fill that out. So for this episode of Q&A or Q&A number two, I guess we can call it, there's a really nice array of topics for today. So we're going to be talking a little bit about salary. Someone described a job offer to me and I really enjoy kind of helping people break that down. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about Roth IRAs. We're going to talk about business entities and we're going to talk about inflation, which I'm going to talk about inflation a good bit in this episode, but I am recording another episode. I'm actually going to record it literally right after I record this one about how I am personally dealing with inflation right now because it is like a serious thing. Okay, let's get to the first question. So this first question is from Anonymous and Anonymous says, I interviewed for a job today and they offered me a salary that's $10,000 less than I'm currently making and I would have to work more hours. The benefits are good, but I'm currently working with a company that provides good benefits too. The job was at a higher education institution, so they offered a tuition waiver and she has in parentheses only 50% of the doctorate though and a 10% matching 401k. I'm still questioning if I'm being unreasonable for only looking at the total number and she has in parentheses here $57,000 a year to start with a nice little like hand in the face emoji. <laughs> I love it. She also says, would love to hear your thoughts. I was very respectful when I told them I would love to work there, but a girl's got a mortgage to pay, LOL. And yes, that is 100% true. I love the fact that you were respectful for the job offer, but yeah, I mean, we gotta be thinking about these types of things. So one of the first things that comes to mind whenever I'm sort of reading this is the benefits package. This particular person mentioned the benefits are good with her current company, but they're also going to be good through this other job, which higher education institution typically means 
um, typically means university and usually universities do have pretty good benefits. So I'm just going to kind of assume that. So one thing that I would encourage you to do is actually put a number value on those benefits to help you decide versus just saying good benefits. Cause you know, sure they may be good, but what are they actually worth? Right. You know, are you paying for any of your own health insurance or is your employer paying for your health insurance? Okay. So say both employers are paying for your health insurance. Who has the better health insurance plan? And also, you know, I encourage people to think, what are your health insurance needs? You know, are you the type of person, if you, especially if you have a lot of like chronic illnesses or if you are on medications that you're taking pretty consistently, your health insurance needs and costs are going to be very different than someone who doesn't have that. So like for my husband and I, you know, we've been blessed that we don't have any really often recurring medical expenses. Honestly, this pregnancy has kind of been the most medical expense that we've experienced. Um, again, we are very, very grateful for that, uh, since we've been together. So for him and I, obviously we want to have decent health insurance, but a really, really, really kick butt health insurance plan isn't going to be necessarily as valuable to us in our current state, uh, especially before I got pregnant as it would to someone who maybe you've got children who need therapy. I mean, we know how expensive therapy can get and medication and things like that. So I definitely encourage you to look at the benefits package, look at the health insurance package, and then even the retirement package. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. This person mentioned that the job that they're looking at has a 10% match. So you can actually take that as a monetary value. So if they are giving you a salary of $57,000, 10% of that is $5,700. Now, granted, you would have to be contributing that amount to your 401k as well. You would have to do your part, but hopefully you are able to contribute that to your 401k. Um, but especially if you know you're already kind of planning to regularly contribute to retirement, which hint, hint, we should all be doing it as best we can because holla, the market's kind of on sale right now, BT dubs. But anyways, so I would kind of include that as part of that number that I was talking to you about. That's $5,700 of free money of, you know, a 100% guaranteed return on your money, which ain't nothing in this world going to give you 100% return. And again, as I'm looking at this, it sounds like this person is going for their doctorate. So I would want to know, or... More correctly, I would say, how much is the value of this tuition waiver? So if you are planning to get your doctorate and you're planning to get your doctorate, whether you work at this education institution or whether you keep your current job, first of all, how much would your doctorate cost you if you were not working at that university or education place and you were working at your current job? Is that the place that you would be going for your doctorate or would you have other options that would potentially be cheaper? So again, we're still really looking at the math here. So just in case I lost anyone, I'm going to give a little bit of an example. So let's say, and I'm just going to use round numbers because my brain likes round numbers because they're easy for it to understand. So let's say that the regular tuition for this doctorate, if she did not get have the job at the university, I'm just going to assume it's university, is $20,000 a year. Okay. But if she takes this job, then they're going to pay for 50% because she did say that they are going to pay for 50% of her doctorate. So now her doctorate is only going to cost her $10,000 a year. So if she were to keep her current job, that's something that I would want to see in the math is, okay, am I going to, am I going to make $10,000 more at my current job versus this other job? Because 
that's part of your equation, especially like I said, assuming she's going to get the doctorate no matter what happens. Another thing you could also consider is, is this the only place that's an option for you to get this doctorate? So maybe this place is offering it for $20,000 as the full price, but if you work for the university, it bumps it down to $10,000. But maybe there's another university down the street that you can do the same doctorate for $10,000. That would kind of change your math. At that point, the tuition waiver isn't as big of a deal for this other job opportunity. So I wouldn't weigh it as much whenever I'm sort of critically thinking about this job and package as a whole. And all of these different things, especially when you're comparing jobs that are just kind of different, like they have a very different set of benefits, like you're comparing an insurance plan on this one to a tuition waiver on another. I really would sit down and just kind of have like a chart and this is have everything 100% laid out, have the math laid out. And you can even look at like, okay, this would be my adjusted yearly income right? Because technically, you know, that $10,000 tuition waiver, you know, like I said, assuming that the doctor costs 20 grand, I have no idea how much it costs, but that $10,000 tuition waiver, if every doctorate program costs $20,000, well, that $10,000 that you're saving actually has a lot of weight. So I would kind of include that in my whole package, I would say. And we also don't want to forget there are non-monetary things that can be at play here. Obviously, I only know about the situation, what this person has written, but if you are trying, for example, if you're trying to get an academia, how beneficial would it be for you to be working at that particular school while getting your doctorate there? I have no idea, but maybe Maybe it is a way for you to build relationships. Like if you want to do academia in the long term, is it a good idea for you to go ahead and start working at a university and maybe you can get tenure one day? once you've actually completed your program. Now, these sorts of things, it can be difficult to put a really hard, fast number value on these things, but even then, I still kind of try, you know, I kind of look at, so in that example that I gave you, how difficult is it for me to get tenure when, you know, working for, having had worked for university and then having had not worked for university, um, you know, versus working in a clinic or working in a hospital or something like that. And maybe you take a little bit of time to do some research so if you're listening, whoever asked this question, maybe you need to ask some people that are already in academia, especially if that's a question that you're like, huh, I really don't know the answer to that. One thing that I find to be really helpful for me whenever I'm looking at these kinds of decisions, because especially when there's a lot of different factors at play and all these numbers, it can be overwhelming. Always get it on paper, get it objective and write it down. And also remember that you're never going to be upset at yourself or regret having gotten more information, right? No one ever is saying, oh man, I had way too much information and knowledge at my fingertips to help me make this decision. I wish I wouldn't have known all those things to help me make this decision decision, right? Usually it's actually the opposite. Like, oh man, I wish I would have known that. So don't be afraid to take some time to do your research, talk to other people in whatever field, or maybe people that have even been in a similar situation as you, because I'm sure that they're going to be able to give you insights that only someone who's kind of been on the inside of things would be able to give you. Now we're going to shift gears a little bit to a more private practice-y, business-y question. You know, your girl just can't resist those. So this one is also from Anonymous. Anonymous has been busy today, guys. So it says, hello, I'm working on starting a private practice, super small at first as I work towards PSLF in the school district, and then I'll probably transition to the private practice full time once I get that forgiveness in about five or six years. For those of you who don't know, PSLF is the Public Student Loan Forgiveness Program that is the 
10-year program that was started by the Obama administration, where if you work for some sort of like public entity, nonprofit type of deal, then if you work there for 10 years and have all your proof of payments, blah, 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 then you can get whatever uh, is remaining of your student loans forgiven. So that is a program she's talking about. Typically, SLPs will get this from working in a school setting. So the rest of the question says, since I'm working it as a second job for now, I'll probably have six to eight clients max, which isn't worth the $800 annual tax and other fees associated with incorporating California. I'm going to stay a sole proprietor and then incorporate it once I transition to it full time. It says here that you cannot do an LLC in California. She also says, can you talk a bit about the tax differences between a sole proprietor and an incorporation? Can I still write off business expenses as a sole proprietor like I did as a 1099 contractor in past private practice? Are there ways to minimize my liability as a sole proprietor? She said, I will also have liability insurance through pro liability as well. She has a second part to her question, but I'm going to answer the first part and then I will read the second part whenever we get to that position. Okay, so let's talk about this first. So business entities. This is something that can be so confusing and so intimidating. This I get questions about this all the time. I'll be the first one to tell you this can vary a lot by state. So for example, like I have an LLC for my business in Louisiana, but I know that there are states where you cannot have an LLC as a health professional. Like I think it's North Carolina. Don't take my word for it. I think it's North Carolina that you have to have a PLLC or something like that if you are a healthcare practitioner. Now I do go into the basic differences between business entities in a bit more detail in my ebook, The Money Guide for the Self-Employed it's actually an ebook slash workbook that has um, some interactive components in there for you as well. Like, you know, your girl loves Google Sheets. So that is 100% a resource for you. You can get that and I'll put a link for that in the show notes. So the typical business entities that you're probably going to run into are an LLC, which is a limited liability incorporation. You can be a sole proprietor, which you don't have to incorporate or anything like that for that. Or you can be something called an S Corp. Typically S Corps, you actually pay yourself a salary that would be typical for your position. And you can still take a profit on top of that, but your salary is more heavily taxed than your profit. For LLCs and sole proprietors, you're taxed equally on all of your profit. And you would just kind of take a bank transfer or write yourself a check for you know what you're going to take home. Now look, your girl is a speech pathologist. Your girl is not an accountant. So for these types of questions, I do think it's important to educate yourself on the sort of like, okay, this is generally how things work. The information I just gave you is very general information, but also remember it's very specific to you, your state and your situation. Like I don't give tax advice. That is 100% something I would recommend you talking to an accountant with. They are going to know so much more. My accountant is a huge wealth of information. He is worth his weight in gold and whatever I pay him is also a business expense. So it's tax tax deductible, holla holla. Now as a sole proprietor, you can write things off. Like you can, you know, you have your business expenses and things like that. My only concern with a sole proprietorship is the liability portion since there just isn't a business or corporation between you and a lawsuit necessarily. So that would really be one of my first questions that I would look at. Like even, you know, obviously you need to have professional liability insurance. Um, 
especially, you know, I have all like in my, all my independent contractors, I require that they have professional liability insurance. If you're thinking of going into private practice, that's definitely something you need is to get a professional liability insurance policy. But that would be something that I would maybe, it might even be worth asking a lawyer, just like booking a sit down meeting and asking them if it would be worth it. Uh, I know $800 seems like a decent chunk of money, but if you're seeing six to eight clients a week, you know, for 10 months out of the year, that's a really significant amount of income, especially if you're in California. I know that just cost of living and everything is pretty high. So you're probably going to be getting, I'd say at least a hundred bucks a session. I'm just kind of like throwing a number out there in California. So it may be worth it. But again, everything is just so state specific. Sometimes I would definitely talk to a law professional to get their opinion. Okay. So now this is the second part of the question. And I didn't want to just like throw it all at you at once. So the part two, of this person's question says, I also don't know if you're willing to touch on how to get started accepting insurance, but that would be amazing. At this point, I may just be private pay only. The MPI process is confusing, trying to figure out how to not make my home address public record since I don't have a brick and mortar yet. So for those of you that listened to that question and were like, what the heck a heck is an MPI number? I promise you, don't fret, sweet sister. I'm going to tell you. So an MPI number is a national provider identifier. So it's actually part of HIPAA and it's just a 10 digit number that is used to identify you to all of your healthcare partners, insurance companies, payers, and in any sort of like HIPAA standard transactions. And this is something you do have to apply for. It's not something that's just given to you, but you may actually already have an MPI number and not know it. If you have ever worked at like a private practice or a clinic or a hospital before, you probably ended up getting an MPI number in order to work there. For me, I didn't officially get an MPI number until I think it was my third year out of school because my first two years out of school, I spent in the school system and I didn't need an MPI number for the school system. But when I went to work for someone else's private practice, I did need to get an MPI number. So if you're not sure if you have one, you can go to the NPPES website and just search your name. If you have a number, your information should come up and it should say what sort of profession, you know, you're under. I do know that sometimes they'll even get MPI numbers for behavior technicians. So if you've ever worked at ABA clinic or things like that. So definitely if you're kind of not sure about it, just go to the NPPES website and look it up. Why not? And you will have to have that number in order to take insurance in any kind of like private practice or anything like that. So insofar as like, should I take insurance? How do I take insurance? Honestly, every insurance company is different. They're all their own little special flower. Some private practitioners will choose to hire out a billing or a credentialing service. My biggest piece of advice here is just be sure to find someone reputable. I have read the horror stories in Facebook groups of someone paying this credentialer a bunch of money and they say they're starting the paperwork and then the person ghosts them and they never hear from them again. So if you're getting someone to help you with it, make sure it's someone that is reputable, who you have lots of reviews and things like that. I also know there are some amazing SLPs that are doing sort of more like an online course thing to help you get yourself credentialed. I got myself credentialed with insurance with my with the insurance company, um, but I'm only in network with one insurance company, so it wasn't like I was trying to you know 
have like five insurance companies that I'm getting credential with at one time. But I know the Sassy SLP and the Entrepreneurial SLP, I believe they both have like insurance, billing, credentialing courses that you can take that will teach you how to do it yourself. And the question that I always, always get about insurance is like, okay, what insurance companies do I start with? Do I, should I start with one? Should I start with five? The first thing that you really want to do that I would recommend is research your area and decide and use that information to decide which companies you want to pursue. So what are the most common insurances in your other, or in your area? If you are friendly with other private practitioners in your area, or if there is a Facebook group for private practitioners in your area, I know Jenna Castor-Casbon has her first free Facebook group that for private practitioners and you can go and sort of look for people by state. I know she tries to do a thread every once in a while where people can identify themselves by state and connecting with other practitioners in your area and see what insurance companies are the ones that are most common. If you have, I know if you have a heavy military presence in your area, I think it's TRICARE is the military insurance. There's plenty of places that that's one of the big insurance ones that they take. For me, TRICARE I don't really have a big military population in my area, so it wouldn't really be very beneficial for me to take it, especially since I'm a, pretty much a solo private practice. And also know that it's okay if you want to just start with one insurance. For myself, uh, I'm still only a network with one insurance company. I do not plan on changing that. It just so happens that in my area, one of the most popular insurance companies that I also know just through talking with other private practitioners that they pay very well and they also pay you on time. You know, I'm not, that was something I knew I didn't want to deal with was waiting six and seven months to get information on my claims back. Another little random tip I'm thinking of in my head, part of why the insurance company I'm currently in network with is uh, a big popular one around here is because they often use it of the, any, anyone who works for the government. So teachers, you know, if you're an accountant and you work for the government of Louisiana, that is the main insurance company that they use. Also a lot of the plants in this area, that insurance company is the main insurance company that they use. So it's just kind of naturally a popular insurance company. So a lot of that is really just doing your research and connecting with other people in your area. Now for the home is public record thing, from what I understand, and this is like, you need to get in with like your local like business association and all that stuff. Um, like they should be a small business, small business association for your area, for your state, for your county or parish or whatever. Definitely try to get in with them because they can probably answer a lot of these questions for you. But from what I understand, you need to have some sort of location listed for your business. So, and I don't believe that you can do like a PO box or anything like that. So I don't know if you can avoid that as having like your home as public record. The insurance company that I am in network with, with my private practice, does require a brick and mortar to be in network with them. So I, and I've, I've always had a, it is a very small affordable office. I got something that I could easily afford. Um, but I've never had that issue of having to use my home address. I've always been able to use my office address, but I don't know if you can avoid that, but that may be something that you would need to ask more at the local level. So definitely look for like your local business association or small business owners groups and things like that and see what you can find. Okay, seriously, I'm having so much fun answering these. Like for reals, keep sending me questions for these Q&A episodes. They're so fun. Okay, all right, this next one is from Mackenzie. And Mackenzie asks, 
how to decide between independent contracting and starting a private practice. I'm currently a pre-K SLP in a school district, and after having my son, I've realized I need more flexibility with my schedule as I want more family time. I'm stuck because we need the income still and health insurance, so I need to start off part-time until I get a good enough caseload. Okay, so... First of all, this is a super common question and a super common concern. A lot of people have this concern, especially when this idea of like when you're transitioning to private practice into a private practice, potentially full time. So here's a few things that sort of popped into my head, Mackenzie. So this is definitely super personal and depends on what you want and your personality. So you can get a lot of the benefits of private practice through a great independent contract gig. Like you can get really good pay. You can get great flexibility. You know, I'm not even going to lie to you. If there had been a really good independent contracting opportunity that fit what I wanted, whenever I start, like before I started my private practice, I probably wouldn't have ended up in private practice, honestly. Like I'm super glad that I did. And there's been opportunities that I didn't even think of that I could take because this is my business instead of working for someone else. But that is something to consider. I really think it's a good idea to think about what it is that you want. And if, if starting a business is something that you're interested in, right? Or for me, I didn't necessarily think I want to start a business, but it was like, oh, like in order to do what I want to do and have what I want to have, I have to start a business and to have the flexibility that I wanted to work with the clients that I wanted and make the money that I wanted. There just, I mean, there really wasn't any options in my area. Cause I looked like, I feel you girl. I looked. So that's something that I would consider. Like I would really look at if you are interested in independent contracting, look at what's available in your area and see, you know, if you could find a great IC gig, would you still be interested in starting your private practice? If your answer is yes, well, then that means that you're probably leaning more towards a private practice type of deal. The other thing that you mentioned is that you still need health insurance. So, I mean, even going back to the first question that I answered today of just breaking down the monetary value of health insurance plans, I would look at that because independent contracting position is not going to have insurance benefits. So whether you become an independent contractor or you start your own business, you're not going to get health insurance. The upside of starting your own business is that you really have no ceiling to your income. So if you need to seek out more private insurance options and not through an employer, your income potential is going to be much greater in a private practice setting, especially if you'd ever be interested in hiring your own independent contractors or your own employees. If you have a spouse or significant other, is there any way you could get on their health insurance? Do they even have access to health insurance at their job? Or you get your own health insurance through COBRA or private or something like that, and you put your son on your spouse or significant other's health insurance. So there's definitely options there for you. I know some people, when they say they need health insurance, it's because either they don't have any other options, like they don't have a spouse or significant other whose plan they can get on, or the plans that are offered to their spouse or significant other are just like really, really bad. (laughs) And that's also something to look at. Like say you did kind of take a less nice insurance plan. Would that be worth the increase in income? Would it be worth the flexibility? all these sorts of things. And the last thing I'm going to leave you with Mackenzie for this is, and again, I, I don't know you friends. Like, I don't know you at all. Like I know like literally these like four sentences that you sent to me on this Q and a podcast questionnaire thing, 
But I just want to be sure that your hesitation to choose pursuing private practice is not being done out of fear or out of just this like, oh, I can't do that or I'm not good enough to do that. Look, starting a business is not for everybody. Okay. It's not like I totally, totally get it. It is not for everyone. Some people just don't want to deal with it and it's different. It's definitely different. Um, and if that's how you feel, Mackenzie, and you want to get a really good IC gig, go for it. But if you do kind of have this pull towards private practice and starting your own business, don't let feeling like, oh, well, other people do that, but I can't do that. Definitely do not let that stop you. There's just so many resources out there. And look, you're a speech pathologist. You didn't become an SLP because you're an idiot. Okay. I'm just saying that. So go do the dang thing. And on that note, let's go to the next question. So this is from Anonymous. Man, Anonymous is busy today. So they asked, how do I choose a Roth IRA account? Okay, so I've actually discussed Roth IRA accounts before in some other Q&As. Now, a Roth IRA account is basically, it's not like an investment, okay? The Roth IRA is the coat around your investments that protects you from having to pay taxes on the money when you take it out, right? So you can, you know, you invest in an S&P 500 index fund, okay? You can invest in that outside of a Roth IRA or any retirement account, and you're going to pay your regular good old taxes on that. Or you can put your Roth IRA little like nice winter coat on it, and you don't have to pay taxes on that money when you take it out, because that's how a Roth IRA works. And so far as how to choose a Roth IRA account, what a Roth IRA is, again, it's just that coat. So when you put your after-tax money in your Roth IRA, and then whenever you take it out, you don't have to pay taxes on that money because you already pay taxes on the money you put in. Now, maybe this person's asking more of like where they should open up their Roth IRA account. The big three investment firms are, and I've, I think I have a post about this somewhere on Instagram. You can go scroll and see. The big three are Vanguard, Fidelity, and Charles Schwab. They are known to have kind of the lowest fees and you can self-manage your accounts, but they also have a lot of really great tools. You can actually go in on one of those sites and open up a Roth IRA for free in like five minutes. Hey friend, are you a clinician looking into contract work, opening up your own private practice, or any other form of self-employment? Maybe you're excited about the flexibility, increased income potential, and overall quality of life awesomeness, but the idea of having to manage your own retirement taxes and a variable income makes you want to hide under your therapy table and never come back? <laughs> I promise I totally and 100% get it. I had the same reservations when I started my own private practice. I actually took a lot of time to research my options for retirement accounts, how I would even pay myself and the different business entities, what they meant, and even how taxes worked so the IRS wouldn't come for me in the middle of the night. Lucky for you, I've actually already done all this research for you, and I decided to compile it into an interactive ebook slash workbook called The Money Guide for the Self-Employed Clinician. With this instant digital download, aka you can get it like ASAP and you don't have to wait for shipping. I know, awesome, right? You are also going to get access to my cash flow goal sheet, health insurance comparison chart. I even give you some examples of profit and loss. I go through taxes, different retirement account options, and even how to budget with a variable income and so much more. In one of the first reviews of the book, Marcia said, girl, never have I ever read a more informational ebook and an easy to read, non-overwhelming delivery method. Thank you for putting this out there for all the SLP private practice owners. 
So if you want to save yourself a lot of time and a little bit of anxiety, click the link in the show notes to get your own instant digital download. All right, let's get back to the show. Most of us as SLPs, PTs, OTs will probably be able to qualify for a Roth IRA account. You just have to have some kind of earned income. And then also they have like an income ceiling on how much you can make to be able to open one. So if you are filing as a single person in the year 2022, you can't make over 140,000 or no, it's 144,000. I'm sorry, they raised it. And if you are married filing jointly, then you can't make more than $214,000 a year. So honestly, opening up a Roth IRA is really, really, really easy. You can just go to one of those. I personally have mine with Fidelity because they actually were doing like 0% fees for a while because I think they were really trying to attract just millennials. Hey, it worked, whatevs. But really, you can't go wrong with any of those three. Now, if you're not really sure about what to invest in, obviously, I don't sit here and give investment advice. Uh, I, I personally invest in index funds. We have put some money into a little bit of I-bonds um, with this sort of inflation situation going on. But I really do love and recommend the course from Personal Finance Club. It's super, super affordable. And he literally takes you, he uses Vanguard, but he literally like does a screen share with you and shows you how to open the account. He tells you like the history of the stock market. He tells you the why behind the stock market and the how. And it just, he really breaks it down to sort of take that fear out of investing. It's really, really easy to fear what you don't know. And so this course, I think it's, again, it's super affordable and Jeremy does, Jeremy does a really great job of just breaking things down and making it really easy. So I highly recommend that. And I will put the a link to that in the show notes. Okay, friend, are you staying with me? Because I feel like I've been talking forever, but these are so fun for reals. Okay. This is the last question for this Q and a episode number two, and I hope Hope you are enjoying it as much as I am. And this one is from Lauren anonymous decided to take a break today. So Lauren said tips for dealing with inflation when my budget was already tight and tips for SLPs who don't get paid during the summer and how to budget for that throughout the year. Okay, Lauren, this is a really good question because the struggle was it's real. Like, gosh, friend, it's so real. Things are getting crazy expensive. I think last time I checked, we are at 9% inflation for the year, which is insane. Um, typical yearly inflation is 3%. So things always get more expensive, but it's definitely a much more gradual thing than what we've been seeing. And then a lot of things have gone up more than 9%, things that we are using very commonly, like things like vehicles, gas, groceries, and things like that. So I'm not gonna go too deep into this answer because I, I will be having a full episode on inflation within the next couple of weeks, just about what it is and really how I've been dealing with it. But overall, you know, there's no, you know, I say this all the time. There's no escaping math, right? Like we can't wish our way out of math. And we, you know, my husband and I, we were literally just having conversation about this. Like I've been kind of getting creative with our grocery budget and, you know, cause we really want to avoid having to decrease our retirement contributions and savings. That's something we really wanted to avoid. So we've been just trying to see, okay, where are some places that we can kind of tighten up in our budget? But if that is not an option for you, I am going to be talking about some things to prioritize in that inflation episode. So be sure you subscribe to the podcast so you get notified about that. 
And finally, for tips for SLPs who don't get paid during the summer, one thing, actually it was my CF year and that's exactly how I was. I got paid. I was a con, I was a contract. I worked for one of these huge contracting companies. You've probably all heard of it. Um, you can shoot me a message if you want to know what it is. Um, and I worked for them for my CF year. And yes, I was not paid during the summer. So what I did, I knew, I mean, a lot of times, you know this when you take the job, right? You know this from the beginning. So what I did, I calculated what my sal. So I knew what my sal about what my salary was, even though I wasn't technically salary, it was hourly, but I was guaranteed so many amount of hours per week. So unless I took a vacation or something. So I took my salary and then I broke that down into how much I would actually make per month over 12 months instead of the 10 months. And then I just subtracted that from what I was actually bringing in each month and I put it into a savings account. I had a separate savings account for that money. So I did have like a very small, at this point I was getting out of debt. And so, you know, I didn't have a huge savings. I had a little bit of an emergency fund just for a cushion. I had a few thousand dollars saved up, um, you know, just in case something happened in my car or anything like that. And then I did have a separate savings account that was like, okay, this is what, you know, this is what I'm going to need to survive for the summer. So that is not money that I put towards my loans, even though I was putting all my extra money towards my loans. Um, that money I knew that I needed for living expenses because, you know, we still got to pay rent in June and July. I don't even know why. It's silly. So silly. So that is what I would recommend. So let's just pretend, let's just do a little bit of math together, shall we? So let's say you're making $60,000 and I'm just using round numbers and I'm also not taking into account taxes and whatnot. You, when you do your math, you need to do that. Um, <laughs> but you can kind of approximate. And also when you get your first check, you can use that to help you figure out what your monthly income is when you get your first check, especially if you're going to be getting the same amount every time. So let's just say you, you're going to make $60,000 over the school year, but you don't get paid over the summer. So I'm going to divide $60,000 by, say you're making that for 10 months. So that's $6,000 a month, right? Now, if I was working for 12 months, $60,000 divided by 12 would be $5,000. So what I would do at that point $6,000 minus $5,000 is $1,000. So at that point, I would just set aside $1,000 each month. And by the time that you get to the summer, you will be able to essentially keep your keep your salary that you've been living off of during that school year. A lot of people make the mistake of basing their monthly budget off of you know, that's $6,000 that I mentioned, but you're, o you're only getting that for 10 months. Don't make that mistake um, because you're going to need, you, you're going to need more than that, obviously, because you're going you gonna to need to survive and buy, buy some food and some, some shelter and some of this expensive gasoline that we're all paying for right now. So a big part of it is just making sure that you do the math. And I personally liked the idea of having a totally separate savings account that it was not my emergency fund. It was not me saving up for another big purchase. It was totally separate. Like I didn't really want to even look at it because I know for me, when I, when I see a big pile of money, it like gets me excited. And you know, a lot of this is about knowing yourself. Are you the type of person when you see a big pile of money, you're like, oh great, I get to go spend it. So just be sure you kind of have a little bit of, um, you're going to have to have a little bit of insight into yourself for that one. 
Okay, so if you stayed with me through all of that, you are like the champ of all the champs. And thank you so much for just taking your time and spending it with me because I know your time is so, so valuable. And be sure anything that I reference in the episode, all of that will be linked in the show notes. And again, if you want to put a question in to be answered on the podcast, the link to the little Google form is also going to be in the show notes for your convenience. And don't forget to continue just going and doing the dang thing. Thanks for hanging out with me. See you later. Thank you so, so much for listening to this episode. Be sure you are subscribed so you can continue to get more no fluff content from me. And I would really appreciate it if you took a small amount of time to leave a review for the podcast. It really helps to boost it in the search engines and ratings. And it allows me to continue to produce this content for you and get this message out there to other SLPs and healthcare professionals. And as always, happy wealth building and go do the dang thing.